There we go. Welcome to the Tuesday night Bible study. Those of you on Zoom, so I know you're awake, wave. Those that you, oh, say amen, way to go. I see those signs. Oh, no, so, no sound, no audio. Do the rest of you seem like you have sound, right? Yes, I'm getting, huh. Well, one group doesn't have sound in Vanuatu. They don't have sound. Everybody else does. I'm not sure why. Um, and those of you that are here, so I know you're awake, say amen. Amen. Oh, that was good. Well, the end of chapter 18, chapter 17 and 18 are about Babylon. I was talking to Ken about this earlier. Babylon, the aspect of Babylon that is the false world religion is chapter 17. Uh, United world worshiping false gods. The Antichrist uses that to come to power and then destroys that false religion, making himself the god that's worshipped. That's chapter 17. Chapter 18 is Babylon, the commercial, industrial, wealth, money, and political system of Antichrist. And, oh my gosh, we have more things to eat. We're going to be pretty busy eating here till midnight. Anyway, um, Babylon has destroyed the political um, Antichrist kingdom is crushed by God himself. Verse 22 of chapter 18 says, the music of harpists and musicians, pipers and trumpeteers will never be heard in you again. No worker of any trade will ever be found in you again. In other words, the sound of a millstone will never be heard in you again. In other words, total hustle and bustle and major stuff going on and all of a sudden, silence, nothing. That will be contrasted in chapter 19, which is the loudest chapter in Revelation. It's the hallelujah chorus. You'll see why in a second. Verse 23, he's still talking about, uh, of chapter 18, he's still talking about Babylon being destroyed. The, sound, the light of a lamp will never shine in you again. The voice of the bridegroom and bride will never be heard in you again. Your merchants will were the world's important people by your magic spell or your sorcery, pharmakia in Greek. All the nations were led astray. No wonder God has to punish Babylon for leading all these people away. There is a little footnote here in verse 23. Do you see it? The voice of the bridegroom and the bride will never be heard in you again. On the surface, and it's probably true as well, that means no more weddings, which is the most joyous occasion. That's in there because chapter 19 is all about a wedding and a second coming. We'll get to that in a second. But there's another meaning that could be possible in verse 23, and that is the bridegroom and the bride will never be, that sound will never be heard in them again. In chapter 19, the bridegroom is Jesus Christ. The bride is all Christians, the church. It's possible it's a double meaning that the whole gospel idea will never be heard in Babylon again because it's all going to be destroyed. In any case, verse 24, in her, that's Babylon, was found. Here's the real most important reason she had to be destroyed by God. In her was found the blood of prophets and of God's saints, holy people, King uh, NIV has. They slaughtered God's people. And of, uh, of all who have been slaughtered on the earth. So because of the death, there's death in Babylon. So that's chapter 18. Let me just look at my notes here. Uh, we pretty much summarized everything. There was an arrogant trust in humanity, in flesh. Instead of in God, Babylon had to be crushed. Keep in mind, 
you might say, why can't Jesus just show up and start his kingdom? He has to destroy all enemies. They have to be put under his feet, the Old Testament says, before he can become king. Um, you'll see one final, um, well, two actually, rebellions that occur. But in any case, Jesus will show up in chapter 19. Here's a brief introduction for chapter 19. When you're reading a book, when you're watching a movie or a TV show, the question always arises, how will it end? And historians and people that have studied human, the human race have wondered, how will it all end? Some have thought, with the advent of nuclear weapons, we're probably just going to blow ourselves to smithereens and go out of existence completely. It's possible, but not biblically speaking. There's another end for humanity. There is great destruction. There's wars. God does not allow us to blow ourselves out of existence. How will it end? The prophetic word of God is going to shine light on that. And for you who believe, the answer is it's absolutely awesome. Absolutely beyond anything we could imagine. Um, there's a word that appears over and over and over in this chapter, and it's the word hallelujah which comes from, hallelujah is um, Hebrew, alleluia is Greek. And it's two words, halle, uh, hallel, sorry, which is praise. Uh, uh, and then the other part of the word is yah, which is God, Yahweh, short for Yahweh. So it really means praise God. When you hear, we sing a song in this church, sing hallelujah to the Lord, right? It means sing praise the Lord to the Lord. Uh, that word has great meaning. There's a scholar, I have it in my notes somewhere, who believes that that word has so much meaning that it can't be translated to other languages. It's beyond saying praise God. It's just such a supernatural, heavenly language type word. Um, so there's the silence of Babylon as it's a total wasteland. God has destroyed the evil empire of the Antichrist. He's still alive. So is the false prophet. So is Satan. But Jesus is coming. And in contrast to all that silence is an amazing loud chapter of praise for God. Hallelujah appears over and over and over and over again. It's beautiful. So this is heaven's response to what we've just been reading about. The other thing that's happening is there's a wedding. How many of you know that Jesus is engaged? Did you guys hear about that? So, wait, what? He's engaged? Yes. He's, the bridegroom is coming back to marry his bride. Oh, who is she? The church. All believers. Why did God use that analogy? There's many others in the Bible. There's the father and the, and the children, right? God's the father to the daughters and the sons. There's um, the shepherd and the sheep. Each analogy tells us something about our relationship and who he is. But the most loving relationship that there is on planet Earth is that of a bridegroom and a bride, husband and a wife kind of thing. It's beautiful, um, predicted in the Old Testament. Although in the Old Testament, the bride of God was, anybody know? Israel, right? Who's represented in Hosea and in other books as being unfaithful to her husband, God had other gods, paganism, disobedience, doubt, 
lack of faith, murmuring, all those things. You've read the Old Testament, so I don't have to go over all that with you. So there's a contrast between the woman in chapter 17, which is the harlot, right? The prostitute, false religion, and the bride of Christ, the real woman. The only other woman in Revelation is the just called the woman. She's sort of the mother. She gives birth to the Lord, and that's chapter 12. That's Israel, to the Lord being Jesus Christ. Uh, let's see. We already talked about that. I think we're ready to dive in. From darkness and doom to deliverance, from woes to worship, one commentator wrote. Chapter 19. If you're still awake, say amen. Amen. Way to go. Ooh, that was good. And those of you on Zoom, I see your signs. Great. Hopefully the Vanuatu people can hear now. Can you hear in Vanuatu? Okay, they're waving. Awesome. Chapter 19, verse 1. After this, I heard what sounded like the roar of a great multitude in heaven shouting, Hallelujah, salvation and glory and power belong to our God. Praise. I want you to notice this is a lesson on worship. And I want you to notice that it's not about, here's how I'm feeling. It's all about God and his characteristics and the name, names and characteristics for God keep coming back. So John usually says after this, in this book of Revelation several times, after this I saw, after this I saw, this time it's after this I heard. This is a loud worship session. So he, what he hears is, something like the roar of a great multitude in heaven. Now, these are all the believers that are in heaven, all the martyrs from the tribulation, people that have died over the centuries. It, some say it is the angels. There's a sort of a controversy about angels that they don't sing. There is a verse I found in the Old Testament where it implies that they might. Um, but in any case, angels tend to say in the Bible or shout and people tend to sing. But in any case, there's a roar of a great multitude and they're shouting hallelujah, praise God. And then there's the characteristics ascribed to him, salvation and glory and power. Keep in mind, these are the things that Antichrist promised. Believe in me, salvation. I have all the glory, he says. I have all the power. We're about to see how little power he actually has compared to God. That all those things and the use of the word and for everyone is a Hebrew way of accentuating and this, and this, and this kind of thing. Why? Because verse two, true and just are his judgments. He has condemned the great harlot or prostitute who corrupted the earth by her adulteries. Those are spiritual adulteries, other gods. He has condemned the great, uh, sorry, he has avenged, sorry, on her the blood of his servants. We just talked about that. The, the harlot, the false religion, and Antichrist kingdom killed many believers. So, Salvation and power and glory belong to God because his, his judgments are true and just. So, um, let's see, I'm on the wrong page of my notes. So, number one, his judgments are 
perfect. I want you to notice that there was no, and there won't be in chapter 20, where there's the ultimate judgment, the great white throne judgment. There's not a trial. There's no defense. There's no hearsay. There's no rumors. God knows everything. Therefore, he can be a perfect judge. If I'm a judge and there are facts that I don't know, then my judgment is imperfect. But if God is the perfect judge, then he is the all-knowing judge, absolutely fair. So um, Babylon brought ruin on his earth. And remember, it is his. It's only right that she now lies in ruins. They killed believers, so they're put to death. By now, everyone on planet Earth has made their choice, God or Satan. Now, they may have said, no, I don't want Satan. I'm choosing the Antichrist or I'm choosing somebody else. who He wouldn't be known as the Antichrist, but he'd be known as the savior of the world, maybe. They've chosen, they've worshipped Antichrist, they've rejoiced. Remember, this is going to come back this chapter. Remember the two witnesses in chapter 11? Most scholars think it's Elijah and Moses. The world celebrated with a holiday when they were killed and they left their bodies unburied in the streets. Do you remember? And then after three days, they rise and go to heaven. Pretty amazing. Uh, let's see. The emphasis of the song is God's attributes. This is the proper way to worship and honor God. Um, let's see. All of this came because of chapter six where the martyrs were under the altar praying to God, how long, Father, until you avenge our blood? And they're told to wait a little while longer. God has great patience, but it doesn't last forever. Eventually, he has to judge all sin one of two ways. We'll get to that a little later. So let's see, we're still in chapter 19. He's avenged the blood of his servants. End of that uh, verse. He condemned the harlot before that who corrupted the earth by her adulteries. She ruined it. It's kind of the picture. Verse 3, and again they shouted. By the way, have you ever been in a football game? You know, an NFL game, you can have 60, 70, 80,000 people. College football has larger stadiums. I think the one where my brother lives in Texas is 105,000 people. You ever hear that many people cheering or screaming or at a concert or all saying one thing? Pretty amazing. This is, they're doing the wave in heaven, if you will. Just shouting again, verse uh, three, hallelujah, which means what class? Praise the Lord. The smoke from her goes up forever and ever. They're praising God that he has finally judged some, an entity that deserved and needed judgment for a long, long time. The way this is phrased is a picture of hell. You know anything about physics, you know that if you build a fire with eight pieces of wood and some hot str straw or paper and you light it, it's going to burn for a while and then what's going to happen? It's going to burn out. Not so with this fire. The smoke goes up from her forever and ever. Eternal punishment. Absolutely deserved. That's what's being spoken of in verse 3. Uh, it means that the punishment is permanent. Um, that's never going to rise again. We've seen the Roman Empire kind of go away, and it's risen again in the last days. Verse 4. 
the 24 elders, we met them several chapters ago, and the four living creatures also met them. We'll talk about uh, them as well. They fell down and worshiped God who was seated on the throne and they cried, amen, hallelujah, it's their turn. Not as big of a multitude, they're answering the multitude and there's only eight, uh, 28 of them, 24 elders and four living creatures. When we talked about the 24 living, uh, the 24 elders, um, the, there's a lot of opinions about them. Some say they just represent all believers. Some say they are 12 and 12, 12 tribes, 12 apostles, makes good sense to me. Old Testament faithful believers and Christians being represented there. The four living creatures, if you remember, uh, we met them several chapters ago, uh, back in chapter four. Um, turn to Revelation four just for a second. I wasn't going to do this, but there's such science fiction sounding creatures. I want to look at them again. Go to Revelation chapter four. Also before the throne, there was what looked like a sea of glass, clear as crystal. In the center around the throne were four living creatures. By the way, these are considered by most scholars to be a very, very high, maybe the highest rank of angels, cherubim. But listen to the description. They're just bizarre. And it comes from the book of Ezekiel. Four living creatures, and they were covered with eyes in front and in back. The first living creature was like a lion. The second was like an ox. The third had the face of like a man. The fourth was like a flying eagle. Each of the four living creatures had six wings and was covered with eyes all around, even under his wings. Day and night, they never stopped saying, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty, who was and is and is to come. Whenever the living creatures, verse 9, give glory and honor and thanks to him who sits on the throne and who lives forever ever and ever, the 24 elders fall down before him who sits on the throne and worship him who lives forever and ever. They lay their crowns before the throne. They got crowns, but they're laying in, at the feet of God, of Christ, because they realized anything they did that was worthy of a crown, he really got the glory for changing them and giving the opportunity and the ability to do so. And then it goes on from there, the praise. But I just wanted you to see those really weird looking. If you're picturing them in your mind, six wings flying around the throne, all the eyes even under their wings, just there's nothing in nature to go. It's just like, right? There's no bird with six wings, is there? In any case, um, the 24 elders and the four living creatures, we meet them again in verse four of chapter 19. They fall down and they worship God seated on the throne. All there is is worship. Doesn't God always deserve this worship? He does. Even when you're in the worst situation possible? Yes. In fact, that's the most important time to worship him. You start worshiping God when you're worried about something, it, it lifts a burden. It's an amazing thing. When you can't sleep, <clears throat> just start calling on the name of the Lord and worshiping him. It's incredible. That's what they're doing. Why is all this worship happening now because this is sort of a sandwich the bread on one side is he just destroyed all the worldly enemies okay um babylon the religious system babylon the political system destroyed he's still about to destroy antichrist false prophet and then satan but 
He's got to clear the deck so that he can worship and be king of kings and lord of lords. That's why there's so much worship here. It's interesting, in the Old Testament, the word hallelujah or alleluia appears repeatedly. You might be surprised to learn the word hallelujah appears nowhere in the New Testament except here where it happens four times. As happy as we are, and we can praise God in all circumstances, here is the occasion finally, where we can praise God in an unprecedented way because he's about to return. Christ is about to return. The bread on one side, he's destroyed most of the enemies. He's going to destroy the rest. The bread on the other side is Christ is about to return. In the middle of that, major worship and praise going on. Uh, by the way, don't put yourself outside the scene. What do you mean? I mean, you're in the multitude. Chances are right? And we're going to hear this, and you're going to remember the stadium analogy, and you're going to, if you find me up there, you're going to say, it was way louder than a stadium, right? It was almost scary, deafening, but in a very cool way. There's something about the corporate worship of people together, and worship, listen, there's a whole sermon on this by, gosh, I can't think of his name. Anyway, from Dallas, uh, black pastor. Ken, you listen to him. What's his name? Who? Tony Evans, he does a whole sermon about um, praise and worship and that there's nothing wrong with loud worship. It's supposed to be loud. Why is God hard of hearing? No, it's supposed to be loud for our benefit that it, we get fired up. Have you been to a football game, speaking of sports, and you see a touchdown and the cameras instantly, the director says, go to the fans. And what do you see? They're just going crazy. People have painted their faces. It's 20 below zero, and there's guys with no shirts on with the team letters here and the whole group of guys that says Vikings or whatever. Yeah, they're a little crazy, exactly. If we can praise God at a concert or a sporting event like that, how much more can we praise God in heaven instead of praising a sports team or a touchdown or whatever? Anyway, that's what's going on. I want to get you hyped up to the noise going on here. I should have had a microphone with really loud volume. Okay. Um, so they're crying, amen, hallelujah, the, the four, 24 elders and the four living creatures. Verse five, another voice, this time from the throne, probably God the Father, could be the whole triune God, could be Christ Jesus, we're not told. A voice from the throne, which means it's not an angel, God in some way, Praise our God. It's, it's an, uh, an invitation to praise. Praise our God, all you, his servants, you who fear him, both great and small. You say, well, this is getting old. I don't think it will when we're there. I think we'll hope it goes on for 10 years. So we, we're seeing uh, great praise coming even from the throne. There's this invitation to now Praise God. The reason is, all you servants, we fear him, both great and small. The, again, the fear of God is not, I'm afraid of God, although a healthy fear of God isn't a bad thing. It is a sense of reverence and awe at his absolute power and glory and majesty. And it makes us feel small. Did you ever go to Yosemite and stand in the valley and look at those 
cliffs and El Capitan and uh, everything there and feel small in that valley or stand at the ocean and just feel small, in a way we will feel even smaller, but in, it's not a, a scared way, it's a good way. We fear him both great and small. Then verse six, then I heard what sounded like a great multitude, like the roar of wa rushing waters and like loud peals of thunder shouting. You say, Joe, you're starting to sound like a Pentecostal. They're shouting, can I get an amen? Okay, <laughs> hallelujah for our Lord God Almighty reigns. What does that mean? He has total power. You know who reigns? The one with power. Who was reigning? Antichrist, false prophet, right? His whole system. The Lord God Almighty means all powerful. Pantocrator in the Greek, a word for someone with total power. Hallelujah. If he reigns with total power, then what do we have to fear? Someone might take over his kingdom. Could never happen. He's got total power. Uh, just a beautiful picture. More praise. Um, God, these are um, an illusion is coming up here with the Hallel Psalms. Those were a specific set of Psalms. I have them in my notes. Um, I don't see it yet. They, the Hallel Psalms had to do with praising God for judging the enemies of Israel when they were in Egypt. The Hallel Psalms are quoted when Jesus rides into Jerusalem on a donkey. Do you remember that? Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. It's right out of that group of Psalms called the Hallel or praise, hallelujah. The praise Psalms, that's, that's going to be coming up. Um, so do you see the word hallelujah there again? Uh, our Lord reigns. I'm looking at notes here. Um, this is not to imply... Oh, he reigns then, but he has not, he's not reigning now. He's reigning in a more full sense. Is God on the throne right now? Yes. Was he on the throne when Hitler was in Germany killing Jews? He was. Was he on the throne when Jesus was dying on the cross, bleeding out? He was. Was he on the throne when you went through that horrible thing you went through? He was. Is he right this second? Yes. Well, then why are they praising him that he's reigning now? Because finally, what has been happening in heaven is happening on earth. The Lord's prayer, thy will be done, thy kingdom come. That's why there's so much hallelujah going on, because his kingdom has, is coming to the earth. And he's going to reign in a full-orbed sense. Jesus is going to reign for a thousand years. We'll get to that in the next chapter. Okay, verse 7. Let us rejoice and be glad and give him glory. This is just the greatest party, the greatest happiness. For the wedding of the lamb has come and his bride has made herself ready. Who's getting married? God the Father? No. God the Son. Jesus Christ is engaged. Jesus has been engaged for almost 2,000 years to all believers. It's a beautiful picture, is it not? Um, let's see, I'm still reading notes. Yeah, we already talked about that. By the way, worship praise is loud. It's fine if it's loud. 
By no means am I trying to say that your and my quiet moments alone with God aren't valuable because they're precious and they are, right? So don't forget that. It's time, close the door, go by yourself somewhere, open the Bible, close your eyes in prayer, worship him there, just you and God. It's not going to be as loud unless you have a loud voice, but it's very important. But there's something about praising God together with people that believe the same thing that is more than the sum of the parts, if you know what I'm saying. Um, it's interesting. The marriage supper of the Lamb is announced here. It's going to be mentioned again. What's weird is it is never described. You're expecting, so the bride comes down the aisle and there's a ring ceremony and somebody says some, it's not described. It's just sort of taken for granted, or maybe it's so heavenly we can't see it in this book. But don't miss the fact you are the bride. Even if you're a man, a boy, you're the bride. The lamb is going to be joined to his people in the most intimate way soon is what's being announced. As we said, Old Testament, Israel was the wife of God. Read the book of Hosea. It's a sad story about the unfaithful wife, which pictures Israel. Um, so the New Testament, you, New Testament church, are the fiance of Jesus. What's our assignment? Keep ourselves pure. Be ready. This verse says that they've made themselves ready. The bride made herself uh, ready. His bride has made herself ready. Let's talk about that in a second. I'm still reading more notes. I have so many notes on this whole section. Do you remember John the Baptist? He said that Jesus was the bridegroom. Way back in John, I think it's chapter one, two, three, early in the Gospel of John. He also calls himself the friend of the bridegroom, or in a sense, he's saying like the best man kind of thing. Jesus was criticized because his disciples, do you remember this? Were eating the heads of the wheat. And uh, Jesus said, shall the friends of the Shall the wedding guests fast while the bridegroom is here? Speaking of himself, it's time to eat. There'll be a time, he says, when they will fast. He dies on the cross, rises from the dead. All of a sudden, they're all alone. They're fasting. They're praying. Christians do fast and pray. But um, there's another analogy or uh, parable in Matthew 22. Do you remember this? There's a parable about a king who invites people to his son's wedding. It's Matthew 22, 1 to 14. And the guests make excuses. I can't go. I got something else to do. I got some business and my daughter just had a baby and we want to go. They make excuses. In other words, their priority is not for this wedding. This wedding is the biggest wedding in human history. Trust me on that. So in that analogy, the king is angry and tells his servants, go invite everybody from other areas, out into the streets. And he invites all these other people via his servants who come to the wedding. They're provided clothes. When a king has a wedding, everybody's supposed to be dressed to the nines. 
Most poor people that were invited didn't have their own clothing like that. You know, people that, how many own a tuxedo, right? Musicians are about the only ones I know that own a tuxedo. They don't have that kind of fancy clothes. The king provides the clothes. In the analogy, a guest tries to get in not wearing proper clothing provided by the king. The king says, how did you get in here without proper clothing? He's coming in in his own righteousness. I don't need Jesus, the clothing you provided, the robes of righteousness. I'm okay on my own. He's kicked out. And the picture is of him going to hell because there's only one way to come to the wedding, to be the bride. Um, yeah, we already talked about that. Oh, the other analogy is the vine and the branches. Another analogy showing that we grow only when we're connected with Christ and all of that. So, um, we, and we talked about the three women, so we're doing good. Um, how did they prepare themselves? It's kind of a misnomer in a way, because it almost sounds like they prepared themselves. They did something that made them worthy to be the bride. But the truth is they were given the ability to do so by the Holy Spirit, by receiving Jesus Christ. So they, we are to live pure lives. That's how we prepare ourselves. First uh, John 3, 2, everyone who hopes in him purifies himself as he is pure. So there's a sense in which they are getting dressed in a garment that was given by their husband, the white robe of righteousness, which is, you'll see in a second, uh, in fact, it's the next verse. Let's look at it. Look at verse eight. Fine linen, bright and clean, was given her to wear. Well, what does that symbolize? We don't have to guess. John tells us. Fine linen stands for the righteous acts of God's holy people, God's saints. Every good thing they ever did for the kingdom of God has dressed them in it. Okay, you're saying then they did dress themselves. They did participate in their salvation. No, because remember the vine and the branches thing? You know what Jesus says in that? It's in John 15. He says, apart from me, you can do, you Christians can do very little. Is that what it says? No, it says, apart from me, you can do nothing. You say, well, no, I know some atheists who've helped with starting charities and they feed the poor. And I know a, an atheist that gave his kidney to somebody. That's a pretty good thing. Was it done for God's glory or their own? Was it done to glorify God in heaven or for their own self-aggrandizement? The reason Jesus says, apart from me, you can do nothing is apart from being born again, first of all, and then the Holy Spirit being in us, we would never want to do anything for God's glory, right? So it's true. They did many righteous acts, right? But just like we just read, the 24 elders take off their crowns, which are rewards for good deeds and faith, and they lay it at the feet of Christ because they would never be able to do anything apart from him. Verse seven, uh, verse eight, sorry. Fine linen, bright and clean. That's it. You go to a wedding, you know, what, men never say this, by the way, ladies, but you know what women always say? Oh, I didn't get to go. What did the bride wear? Men, can I get an amen? We don't care, right? Yeah, a white dress, I don't know. What was it like? I, I don't know. Women could tell you, my wife could tell you, there were pearls here and there was a stitching. Men don't care. What did the bride wear? 
I got news for you. It's fine linen. It's bright and clean. It doesn't sound that fancy. What it does is it contrasts the gaudy... Go to Revelation 17, and I'll show you what it contrasts. Remember the harlot? Revelation 17, uh, look at verse 3. This angel carried me away in the spirit into a desert. There I saw a woman sitting on a scarlet beast covered with blasphemous names and had seven heads and ten horns. The woman was dressed in purple and scarlet. These are the colors of royalty and of the very wealthy. Those dyes were hard to find and was glittering with gold, precious stones and pearls. She held a golden cup in her hand. Not the bride. Simple white dress, perfect, nice fine linen, perfectly clean, symbolizing the purity, but no showing off. It's not about the bride. In American weddings, it's all about the bride. Come on. Does anybody ever ask, what did the groom wear? A tux, a black tux probably, right? It's all about the bride. Not in this wedding. It's all about the groom because it's Jesus. Fine linen, bright and clean was given her to wear provided for her. Uh, One translation has the fine linen was granted to her. Meaning what? She doesn't deserve the fine linen, folks. She's not that holy in and of herself, the church. None of us are. But it's granted that we can wear that because we're actually wearing a robe given to us by the groom, which is his righteousness. That's what we wear as believers. Beautiful picture. Um, fine linen stands for the righteous acts of God's saints, holy people. Holy means separated. Saints means separated out. Verse 9. Then the angel said to me, write this. Blessed are those who are invited to the wedding supper of the Lamb. And he added, these are the true words of God. Now, There's been some question people have had over the centuries about this idea of being invited to the wedding. Meaning what? Well, there's the bride, and then there's those that are invited, the guests. Got the picture? Right? You go to a wedding, there's Susie and Bill are getting married, and there's a bunch of guests. So this says, blessed are those that are invited. So if the bride is Jesus, who are those that are invited? And the answer is, kind of disappointing, it's the same thing. If you're invited to the wedding, not only are you a guest, you're the bride. Some have used this to say, well, the bride is the church, but Israel, they're the guests watching the wedding. Listen, there's one way to get to heaven, that's believing in the Lord Jesus Christ. If the Jews of old looked forward to the coming of the Messiah, they were believing in the Messiah, they're the bride too right? We're all the bride of Christ who believe in him. This is the way apocalyptic literature is. Actually, it's the way all of the Bible is. There's all kinds of images that you can't say, okay, that's it, because they're used in many different ways. Jesus is the lamb. Okay, I got it. Jesus is the lamb, and he's the lion of the tribe of Judah. Well, which is it? Well, he's also the vine. Do you see what I mean? Well, which is it? He's also the living water, and he's also the bread of life, and he's also the door. And what I'm saying is, in this sort of literature, these metaphors, 
can be used different ways. We are guests at that wedding, and we're also the bride. Hard to explain, but anyway. But indeed, blessed are those, this is another beatitude. There are seven, by the way, in the book of Revelation. Blessed are the poor in spirit. Remember in the Gospel of Matthew and from the, uh, from the Sermon on the Mount. Here it is. Who is truly blessed? Blessed are those with the most money. Blessed are those with all the power. Blessed are those with the good job, with the trophy husband or the trophy wife. Or blessed are those with a lot of children. Blessed are those with no children. No, I'm just kidding. The point is, blessed, you want to know who's blessed? The ones that get invited to the wedding, to the marriage supper of the Lamb. Many are called, but few are chosen. You will be at this wedding. The invitation came when someone you knew witnessed to you about Jesus and said, you need this, Harold. You need this, Louise, whatever your name is. We're all sinners. There's no way to save yourself. By agreeing, by receiving the Lord Jesus as your Lord and Savior, you may not have known it, but you are also, in a sense, accepting a marriage proposal, right? It's as if Jesus said, will you? And you said, I, I will. This is the ceremony. Christians have been waiting for this for thou a couple thousand years. You say, oh, I'm not that old. Well, some of us look older than others. Let's keep rolling. Uh, Blessed are those who are invited to the wedding supper, the marriage supper of the Lamb. And why is this in here? Oh, by the way, one commentator wrote that, then the angel said to me, write. It, this is implied in English. It just says the word write. The thought is John is so blown away by the loudness of the worship and those four living creatures and the, all the hallelujahs and the 24 elders and the praise for God that he's forgetting to make notes. He's supposed to be writing all this down and he has to go, wake up, write. So John, he says, write this. And John did. Blessed are those who are invited to the wedding supper of the Lamb. These are the true words of God. That's what it all boils down to, right? There's two categories of people. Those that are going to be at that wedding and those that will be on the outside. You'll see them judged later in chapter 20. There's no other group of people. Verse 10, strange verse, happened early in the book of Revelation. At this... I fell at his feet to worship him. Wait, go back to verse 9. Who spoke this? An angel. Is that okay to worship angels? There's, you go to New Age places um, like Santa Cruz, like Sedona, uh, San Francisco. There's whole stores. You ever seen them? Devoted to angels. Don't do it. They're ministering servants for those who will inherit salvation, Hebrews says. Don't worship angels. Well, my angel is worship God. It's all about him, right? The angel said, write this, and he did. At this, John is overwhelmed with the whole scene and what was just said, and forgetting, he falls. I fell at his feet to worship him. But he, that's the angel, said to me, don't do that. 
I am a fellow servant with you and with your brothers and sisters who hold to the testimony of Jesus. Worship God, period. Well, does that mean I can't worship Jesus? Is Jesus God? Yes, then you can. Does that mean I can't worship the Holy Spirit, though? Is the Holy Spirit God? Acts chapter 5, yes. Ananias and Sapphira lie to the Holy Spirit, it says. And then he says, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to God? Holy Spirit equated with God. The one God revealed in three persons, Father, Son, Holy Spirit. Um, let's finish this verse and then we'll take our two-minute break. John is just overwhelmed with emotion and he forgets and he starts to worship the angel. If that angel had been Satan, he would have received the worship, wouldn't he? And loved it. This angel knows, oh, no, 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 that's a no-no. Don't do that. Antichrist received worship. Many false prophets and false teachers have received worship, but uh, this angel knows it can't be done. Uh, so don't do that. I'm a fellow servant with you and with your brothers and sisters. And then he defines what it is to be a Christian. Those who hold to the testimony of Jesus. What does that mean? To hold something means I will never let it go, right? It's one thing that you could tell me I'm a non-Christian and you Jesse witnesses to me and explains the testimony of Jesus, what Jesus says and who Jesus is based on the gospels, right? And I could say, yes, I understand that. And I could leave his presence and forget it. I, I understood it. I don't hold to it. To hold to it means to believe it in such a way that you will never let go of it. These people... The ones that are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb in verse, uh, wherever that was, nine, are those that are brothers and sisters. That's the, by the way, that's the relationship horizontally. Look around the room. These are your sisters. These are your brothers. Yeah, I don't like that many. You know what? They're your brothers. They're your sisters under the Father. We're supposed to love one another horizontally, love God vertically. You show that you love God vertically by how you love the brethren, including those that are hard to love, like me. Let's keep reading. I am a fellow servant. Brothers and sisters, hold to the testimony of Jesus. So the scholars take that two different ways. Testimony of Jesus, what Jesus said about himself and about the kingdom of God and about salvation. No man, no man comes to the Father except by me, John 14, 6. Does he mean that or does he mean the testimony, what we've all heard about Jesus? The answer is yes, both. Worship God. You know what? We're going to stop and take our two-minute break there because the next sentence uh, is worthy of at least five minutes, and I don't want to do it now. Let's take our two-minute break. I'm going to turn my screen off. Those of you that are here, there's cookies and treats back there galore. Make sure you say hello to someone you don't know. Those of you on Zoom, I'll be back in two minutes. Don't go away. All right, find your seats back there. If you ever come to the Bible study, those of you on Zoom, you'll find that everybody here weighs at least 300 pounds. Everybody. <laughs> brownies. There was three or four different types of cookies, brownies. Anyway, I come just for the food myself. All right, back to the text. Um, 
We're in Revelation 19, picking it up uh, still in verse uh, 10. The, the end of verse 10, he says, worship God. By the way, there are uh, all kinds of people and um, created things that are worshipped in our world. Yes, thank you. Um, that are worshipped, and they should not be. No created thing should be worshipped. God is the one that should be worshipped. Um, the word worship comes from the old English meaning worthship is originally what the word was. Someone had great worth. They were worthy uh, of being worshipped, in other words. Okay. Um, NIV has, for it is the spirit of prophecy who bears testimony to Jesus. Anybody have New American Standard here? I meant to bring this. Do you, John? Cunningham, can you read it nice and loud and I'll repeat it. For the testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. Everything about Jesus that he said and everything that's been testified, uh, testified about Jesus, that we know about Jesus, listen, is the spirit of prophecy. Not prophecy about the Messiah or prophecy about Jesus. He's saying an astounding thing here. The testimony of Jesus is the spirit or the heart of every single prophecy in the Old Testament. In other words, true prophecy always points to or witnesses to Jesus Christ in some way. Any prophecy, you, th you know someone that thinks they're a prophet, that's great. If they prophesy and it doesn't witness to Jesus Christ and bring glory to him, it's to be thrown out. It's false prophecy. You say, wait, the old, you're talking about the Old Testament? I am. And the new. All prophecy, the spirit of all prophecy ought to point to Jesus Christ. I want to give you some uh, examples in a second. Um, it's the common substance of all prophecy. How many have ever heard the term, the scarlet thread of redemption? Can I see your hands? I'm just curious. How many? Okay, it's eight or seven or eight. Um, if you don't know what it is, Google it when you get home or look on the internet. The scarlet thread of redemption. Some Bibles, my Bible, uh, one of the Bibles I have, has in the back a whole section on the scarlet thread of redemption. It's the idea that woven through all the stories and the prophecies and the history of the Old Testament, there's a common scarlet thread, red being like the blood of Christ, that ties the whole Bible together. There are pictures of Jesus, um, Chuck Missler used to say this, on every page of the Old Testament if you know where to look. In other words, um, well, let's go to John 5. Turn to John, we haven't taken a detour in a while. Uh, go to John, the Gospel of John, take a left, and go to the Gospel of John chapter 5, and I'll show you what I mean. John chapter 5, Jesus is talking to the Pharisees, which are the religious, Jewish religious leaders. They're a bunch of hypocrites for the most part. They know the Old Testament inside, outside, backwards, forwards, and yet they know it by the letter, and yet they totally miss that it's talking about Jesus. John chapter 5, verse 39. Uh, let's see. Do I want to go before that? No, let's just take it there. John 5, 39. He says to them, you diligently search or study the scriptures 
He's talking about the Old Testament. New Testament hasn't been written yet. You diligently study the scriptures because you think that by them you possess eternal life. Listen to this. These are the scriptures that testify about me, yet you refuse to come to me to have life. Jesus says an astounding thing. And frankly, if he's not God, if he's not the Messiah, this is a very bold almost conceited thing to say. He's saying, you know, the whole Old Testament, it's all about me. And he's right. He's right. All the scriptures are about Jesus Christ one way or the other. All are pictures of him, Old Testament and new. So uh, let's keep reading, but I wanted to cover that at some uh, level of depth it's the spirit of prophecy who bears testimony to Jesus. All prophecy is about him. Okay. Uh, let's go to... <laughs> let's keep reading verse 19. I got to turn my Bible back here. Give me one second. Uh, are you still awake? Say amen. amen. Oh, that's pretty good. You guys on Zoom, are you awake? Occasionally, you know, most people don't have their screens on, but some do, and occasionally you get a screen with this. <laughs> Which keeps me humble, you know. I think I made some great point, and I look down and I see, and I think, okay, Joe. Um, okay, now we've come to, believe it or not, the climax, the high point of the entire Bible. Chapter 19, starting in verse 11, going all the way to chapter 20, verse 3. This is what's called the second coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. Why is it called that? Because the first coming, he came humbly as a baby in Jerusalem, right? Actually, Bethlehem, outside, five miles out of Jerusalem. He comes humbly. He suffers. He comes as a man. He submits. He dies. He rises. He goes to heaven, right? Ascends. First coming of Jesus. First coming of Jesus, he solves the sin-death problem by dying on the cross, paying for your sin and mine, rising from the dead, showing God's receipt of the payment, and going to heaven. He teaches, but that's not the important thing. It is. Everything he says is unbelievable godly wisdom, but the important thing is who he was and what he did. So we say, and we're right, we have eternal life. We have salvation, those who believe in him by faith. That's what the Bible teaches. We believe it. But if Jesus never shows up for the second coming, salvation will always be, listen, incomplete. It's not my saying it. It was in a bunch of the commentaries. Here, he consummates the relationship in a sense. Um, what we have here is the revelation, the apocalypse, that's what the word apocalypse means, the revelation of something that was hidden of the Lord Jesus. You say, well, now I already know Jesus from the Bible. This is a much more full knowledge of him. Keep your finger here and go to Revelation chapter 1. I want to show you something. By the way, it's a minor point, but I'm just going to say it. I don't like when people say, oh, you're studying Revelations. It's not Revelations. 
I'll show you why. It's, look at verse one. What's the first two words? The what? The revelation singular of Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show his servants that which must soon take place. He made it known by sending his angel to his servant, John, who testifies and it goes on from there. What's the whole point of this book? The revelation singular of what? The end times? No. Antichrist? No. The, 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 um, the harlot riding the beast and the seven heads? No. It's all important. This whole book, not just Revelation, the whole Bible is about the revelation of Jesus Christ. Verse 1, chapter 1. I wanted you to see that, first of all. Everything before that, uh, everything before chapter 19, verse 11, is nothing but introduction. All these chapters we've been through. You say, was that all for nothing? Oh, no, it's history. It's God going, I'll show you that I'm God. I'm going to predict what's going to happen. If you're alive at the time, you're going to go, oh, that's this, and that's this. You understand? And the fact that he tells us the end of the story is so gracious. Have you ever played a sport where your team was losing 19 to 2? in the last inning or in the fourth quarter if it's baseball or uh, if it's football or basketball and you just think well we're going to lose sometimes it looks that way doesn't it in our world this book tells us oh no it couldn't look really bad in the end jesus wins god wins you win in fact you get married it's beautiful so here it is triumph Power, glory, sovereignty, dominion. This is the high point of the book of Revelation. It's the high point of the Bible. As important as the birth of Christ was, as important as the death and resurrection, those are, this is the high point. This is what we've been waiting for since the dawn of time. God with men. What does Isaiah say the name of the, of the Lord will be? He shall be called what? Emmanuel which being translation, translated means God with us. We're going to see that in the next chapter, and especially 21 and 22. Um, okay, so we're going to reveal Jesus Christ. I got news for you. You say, you know, I've watched Jesus of Nazareth, six-hour movie. I've seen The, the, uh, the Chosen, and I have a good idea this is the revealing of Jesus. Be prepared to be surprised. If you're expecting the humble carpenter, the humble guy from Nazareth, that is who he is. But this is, do you remember the revealing, the little peak he gave the apostles in uh, Peter, James, and John only on the Mount of Transfiguration? Do you remember? He's up there. And he starts to glow. It's like Clark Kent goes, I'm going to show you who I really am. And then there's Elijah and Moses that come. There's a whole sermon there. I won't do that now. But in any case, this is the high point of human history, revealing Jesus Christ in all his glory. Um, it's the end, listen, of the cancer that has screwed up earth since Adam and Eve. What are you talking about? Sin, rebellion against God. It's about to end completely for a thousand years. For a second, at the end of the thousand years, you'll see it comes back, and then it's ended forever. 
This is the second coming. The scarlet thread of redemption is all the stories through the Bible. If I had time, we could spend two weeks on taking you through every bit of the Bible. How in Genesis 3, the Adam and Eve sin and they cover themselves with fig leaves and God provides the skins of animals indicating, hinting that by the shedding of innocent blood, there'll be a more permanent covering for sin. That's in Genesis 3, and it's already hinted at. You see it in the life of Jacob, in the life of Joseph. Jacob has a dream about a stairway or ladder to heaven. Do you remember that? Jesus, in chapter 1 of John, claims to be, I'm the stairway. The angels go up and down on me. The scarlet thread of redemption. There's also the golden thread of Messiah's judgment and rule, which is also predicted in the Old Testament. Um, okay, so Joe, you're making a big deal out of this. Let me give you an idea. The most talked about um, subject in the Bible is faith. The second most described, discussed event in the Bible is the second coming of the Messiah. 1,845 times in the Bible. 318 of them just in the New Testament. You're saying, well, can we just dive in? No, I want you to know what a big deal this is. Oh, we got to do this. Turn to Psalm 2. Turn to Psalm... Well, you know what? It's too early for that, isn't it? Yeah, let's wait on Psalm 2. Never mind. I saw you peeking. Don't look there. We won't go there yet. Um, Prophecy, yeah. Uh, 21 times Jesus spoke about the second coming. Um, in Isaiah 9, 6, it says, unto us a child is born. Remember that? In that verse, it says, and the government will be upon his shoulders. Look at the world. Is the government on his shoulders? Look at Washington. Look at Moscow. Look at London. Is it? No. Here it will be. The government of the whole planet, of the whole universe, will be on his shoulders when he returns. Um, we talked about that. Uh, Nebuchadnezzar's vision in Daniel. He sees a huge statue which represents several different kingdoms. Do you remember that? And then, and he's just blown away at how beautiful and how majestic it is. And a stone from heaven hits the statue and it all goes up in dust. That's this, the second coming. All the kingdoms of the world come crashing down when he shows up. Every wrong is about to be righted. That's why this is such a big deal. Until Jesus comes back, our salvation is not complete. It's assured, but it's not complete. This is the answer to that prayer, thy kingdom come. Listen, thy will be done on earth the way it is in heaven. God finally goes, okay, it's time to his son. Here he comes. It's incredible. Um, do we want to go there? Charles Wesley. Some of you know the, that name. I'm a musician. Jeff, you're a musician. Jeff, you're a musician. I was humbled by this. How many songs did Charles Wesley, he wrote hymns, by the way. How many songs did he write? 7,000 songs. 5,000 of them are about this, the second coming. I'm trying to make you see this is a big deal. Turn to Matthew 24. Let's do that now. Matthew 24. 
So take a left, four Gospels. Go back to Matthew 24. Jesus is teaching on the end times and the end of the world. Matthew chapter 24. And in that chapter, he says it's a tribulation like no other. Verse 21, great tribulation, great distress, unequaled from the beginning of the world till now. If those days hadn't been cut short, no one would, be, would survive. But for the sake of the elect, those days will be shortened. In this chapter, he talks about wars, rumors of wars, pestilence, famine, right? False Christs, all kinds of stuff. The, the Antichrist he mentions. Go to verse 26. So if anyone tells you, there he is out in the desert, don't go. Or here he is in the inner rooms, don't believe it. For as lightning that comes from the east is visible even in the west, so will be the coming of the Son of Man. Totally visible. Every eye will see him. That's chapter 1 of Revelation. I think it's verse 7. Every eye. It's not like Jehovah's Witnesses predicted the second coming of Jesus, I believe, seven times. They finally ended up saying, okay, we were right. It was 1914, but he came, wait for it, invisibly. Every eye will see him. Okay, lightning, very bright, very sudden. Uh, verse 28 is going to come up next week. For wherever there's a carcass or where the carcass is, there the vultures will gather. Okay, verse 29, time marker. We've just been through the Great Tribulation, right? Seven years, three and a half. The second three and a half are much worse than the first three and a half. Verse 29, immediately after the distress of those days, that's the word tribulation, thalipsis, squeezing. Immediately after the distress of those days, the sun will be darkened and the moon will not give its light and the stars will fall from the sky, and the heavenly bodies will be shaken. We've been reading that in some of the plagues that have occurred right before this. At that time, what time? After the tribulation, the sign of the Son of Man will appear in the sky, and a couple of the nations of the earth will mourn. Is that what it says? And all the nations of the earth will mourn. Everybody will know. Worldwide event. It won't be the kind of thing where you go, did you hear what happened? You know, Jesus came yesterday. Oh, did he? I missed it. Everybody will know. Was it on the news? Yeah, it was on the news. All the nations of the earth will mourn. They will see Jehovah's Witnesses. It's not invisible. They will see the Son of Man, Jesus' favorite title for himself, coming on the clouds of the sky with power and great glory. And he will send his angels with a loud trumpet call, and they will gather his chosen, elect, same word, from the four winds, from one end of the heavens to the other. Now learn this lesson from the fig tree. As soon as the twigs get tender and its leaves come out, you know that summer's near. Even so, when you see all these things, you know that it is near, right at the door. Uh, heaven, and earth, heaven and earth will pass away. My words will never pass away, Jesus says. Verse 35, two things are eternal, people and God's word. Okay, go back to Revelation. You say, could we please get to the second coming? We're chomping at the bit here. Oh, go have another brownie and be quiet. All right. Um, I'm seeing if I have more notes. John's going to see seven things here. Jesus' return, Satan's capture. We've been waiting for that, haven't we? 
Satan's binding, the millennium, we'll talk about that, Satan's final end, that goes into chapter 20, the last judgment, the new heavens and the new earth and the new Jerusalem, all in chronological sequence. Uh, we already talked about that. We are supposed to be, listen, as Christians, looking for this. What do you mean? 2 Timothy 4.8. Now there is in store for, for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day when he returns. Listen, and not only to me, but also to all who have longed for his appearing. Are you and I so busy with our lives here <clears throat> that we don't look up and be watchful as we're supposed to? I, I think about the second coming more than I ever have in my life now with the way the world's going and just, amen, Maranatha, come Lord Jesus, right? The sooner the better. Titus 2.13, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing and glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Hebrews 9.8, Christ will appear a second time, not to deal with sin, but to save those, listen to this, who are eagerly waiting for him. Here's the so what. If you're a Christian or so-called Christian and you're engaged in some bad stuff, some sin, I'll tell you right now, you're not looking for Jesus' coming. You're hoping he doesn't come. For you, it's like getting all Fs on your report card and your dad's car is in the driveway and you're going, oh no, if he shows up. It ought to be, we got straight A's and you can't wait to show your dad, look. Or you hit a home run in the game and there's a video of it and you want to show him. We ought to be looking for it, living holy lives. When Listen to Colossians 3. When Christ, who is your life, appears, you also will, will appear with him in glory. Zechariah 14 predicts that this event, the second coming, will happen on the Mount of Olives. Same place he ascended from, near Jerusalem. When he lands, he will split the mountain in two. We'll see this next week. And there'll be a huge earthquake. By the way, there is a fault that runs right through that mountain. How did God know that? Lucky guess, probably. Yeah, right. Um, okay. He comes with believers. Christ returns with all the believers that have died. And he comes with angels as well, we've already seen. When he comes in the glory of his Father with all his holy angels. Okay. You say, could we please get to it and shut up? Okay, verse 11. Oh, look, we're out of time. No, just kidding. Verse 11. I saw heaven standing open. Not a door open. He saw a door open. Heaven is open. Can you imagine what that looks like? And there before me was a white horse whose rider is called Faithful and True. With justice, he judges and wages war. White horse symbolizes victory uh, in that part of the world, uh, military victory kind of thing, victory over enemies. He's faithful. The beast was unfaithful, the Antichrist. Remember, he broke the covenant with Israel. He's one you can rely on. He's true, genuine Messiah, real God. Um, by the way, this is such an interesting thing. I wish I had the ability to put it on screens and share the screen on Zoom, and it's too technically 
complicated for my little brain. When you go home, Google, because I heard a guy give a sermon about this and show this picture, Skip Heitzig it was in New Mexico. And he showed a picture of a view of a beautiful, you're up on a mountain and there's a beautiful green valley, just huge. And it's the Valley of Megiddo where the Battle of Armageddon is going to take place, which we're about to see. Jesus, I never knew this, from Nazareth as a kid had that view. You'll see pictures, Google it and then click images and you'll see all the images. It's just a beautiful, he must have seen that as a boy. I don't know if he knew what we know, that he's fully God at that point, but it's all going to take place there. Pretty amazing. Um, okay, verse 11. With justice, he judges and wages war. He says, war? Really necessary? I thought he was the king of, prince of peace and all that. It's necessary. He's taking back his world, right? He is avenging the death of his servants. With total justice, he judges. He says in the Gospels, I think it's in Matthew, all judgment has been committed to me by my Father. Who's going to judge the world? God, yes, in the person of Jesus Christ. There'll be no excuses. So here he is. Heaven's open. There's a white horse. That's where he's coming from. The Father has said, it's time to do it. Everybody mounts up. You're going to be riding on a white horse. Some of you say, I'm, I'm allergic to horses. I'm a little afraid of horses. You don't have to be afraid. Um, please notice at the end of verse 11, who wages the war? Do we? Do the angels? He wages war. Well, wait a minute. He's way outnumbered. We're about to see the, all the armies of the world are going to be gathered to try to kill him. He wages war alone. Verse 12, describe him for us, John. His eyes are like blazing fire, meaning his absolute total knowledge and be able to search out everything, including he sees everything, all sin. And on his head are many diadems, that's crowns, that's royal crowns. There's Stephanos, which is a temporary crown where they would weave plants together, leaves together. When you win a race at the Olympics, whoop-de-doo, you get a little crown that, that you're the victor. These are um, crowns of royal ruling and being king of kings and lord of lords. Many crowns on his head. He has a name written on him that no one knows but he himself. Isn't that interesting? Now, I know what you're thinking. Well, what's the name? Read the verse again. <laughs> no one knows, including the guy with the mustache on Tuesday. I don't know what the name is. Neither do you. Maybe it'll be revealed at that time, maybe later. What does this mean? It means that if you think you know everything about Jesus, you're wrong. It, we'll spend all of eternity in heaven learning about him, right? There's some more to know about him, but it's a name only he knows. Uh, and we can't, we shouldn't guess, and we won't guess, right? Um, let's see, we already talked about that. H how different this is from the other crown he wore of thorns, a big bloody mess on his forehead, around his scalp. This is not the same Jesus, the bloody, you'll see some blood here, but this is the exalted, glorified 
Jesus showing you who and what he really is. A name on him nobody knows but himself. What's he dressed in, John, verse 13? Dressed in a robe dipped in blood, and his name is the word of God. There's a few scholars that think the robe is dipped in blood because it's his blood from the cross. The majority said that this is a term that was used in those days for the dipped in the blood of the uh, war that he wages on his enemies. The great bloodshed is about to happen. When we get to the suppers, which will be maybe later tonight if we have time, or next week, you'll see. Dressed in a robe, dipped in blood, and his name is the Word of God. Think about that. How do you and I express ourselves? Now, it's true that I could non-verbally express something to you, right? Um, a smile or tears. I wouldn't say anything and you go, something's wrong, right? But the primary way people express themselves, I express my mind or my heart to you is how? With words. This person, Jesus Christ, is the word or the words of God incarnate in a body. It's an amazing thing. He's the full expression of God, God's heart, God's mind, God's will, everything. Words are made up of letters, right? R-I-G-H-T, right? Yes. Are you still awake? Say amen. Amen. A-M-E-N. Amen. Okay. Thank you. What's your point about the letters, Joe? Jesus says, I am the alpha and the omega, the first and last letters of the alphabet. I'm the A to Z. I'm all the letters. I'm God's divine alphabet. I'm the expression of God's mind, God's heart. The Father reveals himself through the Son. Jesus says in John, um, I think it's chapter 10, right around in there, he that has seen me has seen the Father. Remember that? Pretty amazing. Uh, Yeah, we talked about that. Uh, So he's the Word of God. John starts John 1.1, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Remember that? 1 John 1.1 has the word of God. Uh, The Greeks had a concept of the word, the logos. That's the word here. Their concept of the logos, the word, is this. It's It's the reason, it's the answer to everything. Why does the sun rise in the east and set in the west? Why is there gravity? How are babies born? Why are we here? The Greek philosophers would say that's the logos. It's kind of an unknown thing. It's just the ultimate reason or word of God. So if you hear a phone, that means I said one thing correct. That's God letting you know. The word of God is the ultimate reason for everything. John says in John 1.1, in the beginning was the word. He's the absolute reason for everything. Um, okay, we already talked about that. Hebrews 4.12, Maria quoted this verse to me earlier tonight. Um, The word of God is living and powerful, sharper than any double-edged sword. Why is it a double-edged sword? Listen, because the word of God, Jesus Christ, cuts two ways. If he cuts through to you in a way that makes you see your sin and your need for a savior and he saves you, that's good. But if that word hits you and you disobey it or don't want it, then it becomes the ultimate punishment for you. It cuts both ways. The word of God's powerful. It's living. It's alive. Do you know the book you're holding in your hand is a supernatural book? I don't mean that facetiously. I mean it for real. 
supernatural. Um, one of the evidences to me has always been, you can read Romans or Revelation or any book, Mark, and then read it again, and you'll see stuff you never saw before. You'd this is my third time teaching through Revelation. I've seen all kinds of things I never saw before. You say, well, that's because you're not a good teacher. That may be, <laughs> but <laughs> I'm working on it. Um, we're almost out of time. Um, okay. Uh, let's see, dressed in a robe, dressed in blood. His name is the word of God. The armies of heaven were following him, not leading. You ever lead God? Don't do it. Follow him. Following him, riding, here's you, on white horses and dressed in fine linen, white and clean. Are they coming on, on land? No. Are you saying these are flying horses? I am. Do they have wings? I don't think they need wings. They're with Jesus, right? Coming from heaven. He saw heaven open. Here comes Jesus on a white horse with you behind him, right? Can you imagine the excitement? It's Here it is. It's finally here. Awesome. Um, yeah. Arm, okay, what are they wearing? Fine linen, white and clean. If you and I were wearing... If, you, if I was wearing my righteousness, my good deeds, my world, my record in my life, it would be the Isaiah quote, which is all our righteousness, so-called, is as filthy rags. Why are these people, they must be so perfect. No, they're wearing his righteousness, right? They've trusted in his death on the cross, his resurrection. So that's where we get the robes. They come from the groom don't they? Why are they dressed this way? Because he's pure, not because they are. Uh, we're out of time. Let me see where I am right now. Should we keep rolling and just forget the clock? Um, what did you say? Sherry's waiting. Sherry's waiting. Get out of here. <laughs> yeah. There's the buzzer. Our time is up. Um, Writing it, yeah. How we're gonna we're gonna stop right there because then coming out of his mouth is a sharp sword. We'll talk about that next time. And he's got on his thigh a name written. And is that the unknown name? No, because no one knows the other name. King of Kings, Lord of Lords. We'll see that next time. Let's pray, and we'll get out of here. And God willing, we'll pick it up a week from tonight. Let's pray. Thank you, Father, for this time we could witness the greatest event in human history. As awesome as the birth was of Jesus, as awesome as the Ten Commandments were, and spl splitting the Red Sea, and Jesus rising and ascending, and the miracles and the walking on water, they all pale in comparison to this. Awesome. It's what we're waiting for. We look forward to it. Help us to be wearing those garments prepared for your coming, Jesus. We thank you for your perfect judgments, your justice, the rewards, the perfect love. Thank you that you reveal the Father, Jesus Christ. And it's going to happen just the way you've said, we can already tell. Help us to live with this in mind, God. Heaven comes to earth. Help us to store up treasures there and to look forward to this day. Indeed, we'll see it one day. I can't wait. In the meantime, use us for your glory, change us, make us what you want us to be, and whiten those garments even more, Father. We pray all these things in the mighty name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen.
Thank you for being here. Make sure you say hello to someone. Introduce yourself to someone you don't know. It's very important. Those of you on Zoom, God bless you. See you next time.